is Arif Katra, and I'm the host of Voices Worth Listening To. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about diversity, stories that I hope will make you think and reflect on how we experience each other's differences. My goal is to encourage change in our individual perspectives and in the ways in which we live and work together. Today's episode of Voices Worth Listening To is the first of a two-part series that answers the following question. How can organizations do a better job of recognizing talented women of color and promoting them into decision-making and leadership roles? Many of my friends often joke that when a company hires me, they win the diversity lottery. This is because I'm brown, gay, a Muslim, and overweight. So my friends say that you're the candidate every recruiter dreams about. And when it comes to promotions, they often say that anyone in their right mind would never think about letting you go. Jokes aside, this is serious stuff. In the last year of my podcast, some of my biggest aha moments have been in the rather underappreciated area of intersectionality. Intersectionality refers to the interconnectedness of things like race, class, gender, sexual orientation. And it's not just that they overlap, it's that they are often subject to overlying and interdependent systems of discrimination and disadvantage. At the risk of oversimplifying, it's like when you take your kid to the amusement park and the ride says, must weigh 50 pounds and be four feet tall, and your kid weighs 35 pounds and is three feet seven inches tall. The rules are against them in more than one way. That's kind of how it feels when your diversity is multiplicative or intersectional. The intersectionality I want to speak about today is that faced by women of color. About 10 episodes ago, I did a two-part series on the experience of professional women in the workplace. Through some pretty gut-wrenching stories and an interview with Professor Nicole Haggerty from the Richard Ivey School of Business, I learned two things that bear mentioning today. One, if you think you want to support women in your organization, then exhibiting passive empathy is not very useful. You know, saying stuff like, I can't believe this happened to you, that's pretty empty. If you want to offer real support, then you have to do real things. Stand up, speak truth to power, and join the fight for change. The second thing I learned is that real change only comes about as women are supported to progress and take up decision-making roles in organizations. After these early episodes were aired, I had the opportunity to speak to many more professional women about their experiences in the workplace. And what stood out to me are the challenges faced by women of color when it comes to being recruited, seen as being talented, and then supported to progress within an organization. No matter who you are in an organization, progression requires the right interplay of leaders and systems. Two systems matter. Systems that recognize talent and systems that promote talent. First, to recognize talent, organizations need systems and willing leaders to bring diverse talent to the recruitment table 
and then used merit-based principles to recognize hard work and performance. Second, it's important to realize that talent doesn't get cultivated or promoted just because it gets recognized. Promoting talent requires an organization to have systems and leaders in place that provide tangible opportunities for people to get better at their current jobs and build skills for their future promotions. And leaders? Well, they need to take risks equitably when it comes to giving people a chance to rise through the organization. Finally, established leaders need to provide mentorship and have the backs of their newly appointed colleagues. In today's episode, we will explore talent recognition. Then in December, we'll explore talent cultivation and promotion. So let's start by listening to two stories that do a great job of demonstrating the barriers women of color face when it comes to having their talent recognized. In every MBA program I have led and taught in, women faculty are a small minority. And faculty that are women of color, well, they're barely represented. In executive programs, that number shrinks even further. Executive education pays big bucks and is often an old boys network, mainly staffed by very talented faculty who are mostly white and mostly men, with very few women and almost no women of color. Let's look at the private sector. In Canada and the U.S., women make up about 60% of entry-level positions in banks, but only 35% of managerial positions. Women of color? Well, Bank of America has one woman of color on its senior management team out of 28, and I'm not even sure this person lives in the U.S. In Canada, TD Bank, Bank of Montreal, no women of color on their executive teams. Scotiabank and CIBC? One. The challenges organizations face are less about attracting women of color and much more about promoting them. So why are women of color left out of the mix? Does their talent benefit from an equitable opportunity for recognition? Professional women of color experience what I call a talent box. In that box, there is an expectation that they will use their talent to drive performance. And that's a reasonable expectation for every employee in an organization. But for many women of color, their talent boxes have a few extra elements. First, many women of color are faced with odd expectations of how they must achieve performance outcomes in order for their talent to be recognized. And second, many women of color experience a clear and often completely inappropriate messaging that their achievements are unlikely to ever be treated on an equal footing. Let me tell you Rachel's story. Rachel is a black woman with an MBA with over 10 years of experience. Rachel worked for a large American pharmaceutical company, starting off as a senior sales rep and eventually moving to a district sales rep. Over 10 years, Rachel has always surpassed her target performance benchmarks. And as a district sales rep, she has helped many senior sales reps improve their performance. But Rachel was not being promoted. And after repeated disappointments, Rachel reached out to her senior manager, also a woman. Let's call her Patricia. Rachel presented her case for a promotion and wanted to understand what she was doing wrong. Patricia was very upfront. You're a top performer. There's no question. And you're a team player. 
Patricia said. But see, Rachel, the problem is you're just not vulnerable enough. Managers don't want to see the aggressive go-getter that you portray. They want to see some chinks in your armor. They want to see that you wear your struggles on your sleeve. If you do more of that, it will help them see that you really want the promotion. Rachel was floored. She thanked Patricia, went back to her office space, and started looking for a new job. And within two weeks, Rachel handed in her resignation. See, the problem Rachel's company had with her had nothing to do with performance or how she was achieving those results. It had to do with the idea that when Rachel demonstrated drive, it made others feel uncomfortable because they had an unconscious bias that women, specifically black women, have to demonstrably struggle for us to see their efforts and achievements as legitimate. With men, it's different. The less we look like we're trying, the less vulnerable we are, the stronger and smarter we seem. But with women of color, no visible struggle often means no recognition of talent. You might say, Arif, I don't think that's true for everyone. And I give you that. It's certainly not true for everyone or every organization. But even as a man of color, the credibility of my achievements is questioned first before the achievements are lauded. For example, when I was at the Richard Ivey School of Business, I won something like five teaching awards over five years. Most of my colleagues were amazingly supportive, and by and large, so was the school. But there was always three or four faculty, usually in positions of power, who let me know in one way or another that they didn't believe the awards were meritorious, that something else had to be going on. And although no one clearly explained what that something else could be, it made me feel that I too was in a talent box, one that made my achievements less worthy of recognition because of who I was. Let me tell you another story of a woman of South Asian descent who recently had a jaw-dropping conversation with her managing partner within six months of being on the job. Let's call her Amna. Amna worked for one of the big five management consulting firms. The firm was trying to launch an LMS learning platform and training systems for their insurance company clients. This was a need among insurance clients that represented an important revenue generation opportunity. Amna was the head architect on the project, but was provided with very few resources in terms of access to potential users or a subject matter expert. That was a bit odd because both are standard practice for most LMS-related projects. But Amna, if nothing else, was certainly resourceful, and she was able to reach into her own network to get the information she needed to design a pretty impressive demo so partners could see the potential of such a product for insurance clients. The demo was attended by four partners, and it went really well. In fact, one of the partners announced that he had already signed a client and would like the team to show the client what the LMS underpinning the claim center could look like. He said, this is very exciting work. We need to continue building out the product, and we need to also start developing a sales plan. 
One of the other partners asked Amna's manager if Amna could stay behind after the meeting so he could ask her some more pointed questions about the LMS platform and the training. Amna was super excited. Getting quality FaceTime with a senior partner was not easy at the firm. Here is the conversation between Amna and the senior partner. Let's call him Scott. Thank you, Amanda, for staying behind. It's my pleasure, Scott. Thank you for taking the time to want to understand more of the work. So, Amanda, where are you from? I was born and raised in Toronto. No, I mean, what's your background? I'm Kenyan. You don't look Kenyan. Where are your parents from? They were born in Kenya. I don't think I understand. Uh, well, my family has lived in Kenya for four generations. My dad's family is originally from India, and my mom's family is from Pakistan. We're Muslim, but also Punjabis, so I come from a large family. At least 50, 60 people at family get-togethers. This wasn't the first time Amna was being questioned about her background. But there was something different about the tone of these questions. Nevertheless, Amna didn't want to pay attention to the tone. This was her one opportunity to shine in front of a senior partner, to make a positive impression. So as the partner kept asking Amna about her background, Amna tried to steer the conversation to more pertinent elements of her background, like completing her graduate work at OISE at the University of Toronto, one of the most prestigious graduate programs in education in the world. Scott, one of the most life-changing events in my background was having the opportunity to go to OISE. That makes me wonder, how many people at OISE do you think were similar to you? How many were, you know, sort of young Indian women? Uh, I don't know. I guess I had one friend in the program that was also South Asian. I mean, there weren't a lot of South Asian women in the program, and there wasn't even any South Asians in the faculty. That doesn't surprise me. You know, even here, I've noticed that people with different backgrounds have different capacities in terms of working with clients, dealing with complex problems, and just the basic capacity to do the work. Well, everyone's life situation is different. I mean, if you're a parent of three young kids versus someone who doesn't have kids, you have different pressures which may affect how you're able to contribute one day or another. Or, for example, if you have years of management consulting experience, you might handle a client differently than, say, someone who's brand new. But overall, everyone I've worked with here has been amazing and they're bringing their A-game to work every single day. I totally agree. But I think culture and background matter to your ability to be effective. You must notice that in a room of 10 people, you are often the only brown person. It's hard to find support. But it's more about capacity than support. And frankly, I think people in your situation, you know, from your background, often give up and don't end up working as hard as people like me. But you are clearly the exception, Amanda. Uh, I, I guess. How did Amna feel? What was her reaction? I'll let her explain. I was in shock. Utter, utter shock. I needed a few days off, and when I returned, my shock just turned into anger and disgust. I couldn't believe that in 2021, in one of the leading consulting companies in the world, that I would ever have this type of conversation with a partner. The organization openly speaks about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It even offers training to staff and partners. Although, come to think of it, I have never seen a strong representation of partners at any of these training sessions. The company produces report after report on DEI and even takes on work in this area, but it simply didn't walk the talk. 
I went to my superiors to complain and received no support. They said, you know, Amna, he has a reputation for, the, for these types of comments, but the bark is louder than the bite. Just ignore him. Why would the system want to protect someone like that? And why would you want someone like that in a leadership position? Anger turned into sadness and sadness turned into defeat. When finally, I asked if there was an equity officer that I could speak with and no one, not a single person on my team knew who that person was. What was clear to me was that I had no future at this organization. I was talented, but the leaders and systems were working against each other to recognize that. And my sense was that my future at the firm was non-existent. I left, it took a month, but I finally left. Amna clearly found herself in a talent box, a set of barriers imposed on her that would likely prevent her talent from being recognized. Believe it or not, the systemic changes here are easier than changing people in power, like Scott. Here are four systems-based suggestions to help everyone's talent, including women of color, to be more equitably recognized. One. The annual review systems in most organizations are usually used to hold employees accountable to performance goals. However, they can also hold managers accountable, especially for decisions related to who is being promoted and who is not. HR leaders need to institute systems that require managers making promotion decisions to provide database reasoning for why employees with solid performance records are actually not being promoted. This systemic change is an effective way to encourage merit-based talent recognition. Two, promotion decisions need to be subject to an independent check and balance. The best way to achieve this is to hire an external consultant to evaluate the broad set of candidates that qualify for being promoted, not just those being considered. This person would evaluate performance records and interview the candidates to determine who might be the best set of candidates for promotion. These independent scores are then shared with the firm and serve as a counterbalancing opinion around the promotion. Three, if you are in Amna's situation, you know that Scott is highly unlikely to ever truly recognize your talent, no matter what you do. So what options do you have to get your talent recognized? Leaders need to promote recognition systems, such as annual performance awards, based solely on self-nomination versus being nominated by your boss. These self-nominations need to be evaluated by a committee made up of diverse leaders from both inside and outside the organization. This provides equitable access to recognition. And the fourth systemic change is related to storytelling. Leaders need to share stories of individuals who have contributed significantly to the organization's success because of their professional backgrounds and their lived experience. These stories should be shared loudly and proudly via a monthly video email sent out by a different vice president every month called something like Celebrating Our Diversity. But systems alone will not fully change how talent is recognized. For that, you need leaders who may struggle with recognizing talent equitably to be willing to change their internal thought processes. This is hard. But here are two suggestions. One, 
stop buying off-the-shelf, large-scale, unconscious bias training and start investing in bespoke training. Hire an external consultant to speak to minority populations within your organization to unearth their experiences. What does it feel like for people to be a minority in the organization? What unconscious biases have they encountered? What do they think about their professional future at the organization? These interviews will allow a consultant to create unconscious bias training that draws from real experiences within your organization and deals with the actual challenges around diversity, equity, and inclusion. The training is richer, and the outcomes have a much better chance of driving change. My second suggestion is candid, but also developmental. Every organization has someone like Scott. In each place I've worked, there have been at least five or seven such individuals. The first step is creating space for those victimized by discrimination to tell their story. Ideally, to a respected senior manager who can assure them that their concerns will not be ignored. When these stories are heard repeatedly and over time, the individual perpetrating the discrimination needs to be confronted not in an aggressive way, but in a way that lets them know that their comments and behaviors have been noticed and that they must change. There is work to do, and that work has to start now, and it's not optional. This involves a mix of coaching along with mentorship from a very senior person. This is neither comfortable nor easy, and it very much needs to be private. But these kinds of systems send a key message to everyone working for the organization that diversity, equity, and inclusion is a priority. I hope you'll tune in next month when we explore how organizations can do a better job of creating an equitable context that affords women of color the same opportunities to rise into decision-making roles and leadership positions. And I especially hope that today, the time spent listening to this podcast made you feel that this was a voice worth listening to. If you would like more information about my work in diversity and strategy, please visit my website at www.strat-ology.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. The music in this podcast is from the Toronto Tabla Ensemble. To find out more, visit torontotabla.com. That's the word Toronto and the word tabla, T-A-B-L-A dot com. <laughs>